You be seated. You want to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 26, nope, 25. Genesis chapter 25. Wait till, wait till I say something profound, you know? <laughs> All right, so chapter 25 has a bunch of crazy names in it. We didn't have a reader as of 8 o'clock, 9.30 this morning. So Kate and Kaylin, I guess you flipped a coin and you lost? Or you won because you said you didn't mind doing it. So Kate's going to come and she's going to read to us uh, chapter 25, the first part of the chapter, verses 1 to 26. Hold on, I didn't turn your mic on. Oh, I got you. Yeah. Genesis 25. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan, father of Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Atushim, and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephath, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these children, all these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, and an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. And there Abraham was buried with his wife, Sarah. And after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Bir Lahabroi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Neboeth, the first of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jator, Mapish, and Kedima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is the opposite, which is the opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, and Araman of Padan Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived, and the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. 
And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, and all of his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. And afterward his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so that his name is called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. This is the word of the Lord. Good job. Good job. All right. Well, this is one of those times where I really, really wish there was not a chapter divide. So take your pen out and take the number 25 and just put a big X through it. (laughs) You're allowed to do that. If I ever say X out anything else in your Bible, you leave. But the chapter divide is not inspired. The reason I say that is because there is goodness and good news from chapter 24 that we need to enjoy and carry into chapter 25. So I want to go back to chapter 24 and highlight a phrase that is used four times in chapter 24 and show you why it's so important to carry those with you into chapter 25. So look back into chapter 24. You need to have this circled or underlined in your uh, Genesis scripture journal. So here's what it says in verse 12. This is Abraham's servant talking to God. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show, and here's the phrase, steadfast love. Steadfast love. Look down to the end of verse 14. Last sentence of verse 14. This is chapter 24, verse 14. Last sentence. By this I shall know that you have shown, and here's our phrase again, steadfast love to my master. Look at verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his, say it with me, steadfast love. And then he adds, and faithfulness. And then look at verse 49. Now then, if you are going to show, to say, steadfast love and faithfulness to my master. So four times in chapter 24, we see steadfast love. God shows steadfast love to Abraham. That's the main point, really, of chapter 24. But we need to carry that into chapter 25. And listen, let me tell you why. This is the first time in redemptive history that we learn that God has steadfast love. It's the first time in Genesis. It's the first time in our Bible where you realize, wow, God shows steadfast love. Now, if I'm going to be in relationship with a God of the many attributes that I hope he has, one of them at the top of the list is probably going to be... Steadfast love, or at least love, right? I want a God who shows love. And so I think it's significant that this is the first time I think that God's people would have realized, okay, this God that we are interacting with is a God who is filled with steadfast love. And what's interesting is God is showing steadfast love to Abraham in chapter 24 by blessing Isaac. So you think it would be steadfast love to Isaac, which of course it is, but it's like, no, I'm going to show steadfast love to you, Abraham, by blessing Isaac, by giving Isaac Rebekah. And so this carries right into chapter 25, where we're going to see more ways that God shows steadfast love to Abraham. First to Abraham directly, and then to Abraham through Ishmael, and then to Abraham through Isaac. So you could divide this section up, this little section that we just read, into three chunks, into three parts that are all about God's steadfast love. And how God shows it to primarily Abraham, but in different ways. So the first little section, verses 1 to 11, God shows steadfast love to Abraham in his later years. He's getting old. We're going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about God's steadfast love to Abraham in blessing Ishmael, verses 12 to 28. And then we're going to see God's steadfast love to Abraham in blessing Isaac. 
And that's in verses 19 all the way through the end of chapter 35. So that's how this story unfolds. Let's look at the first one together. God's steadfast love to Abraham, and I'm using the phrase, in his later years, because he is old. This is the last 35 to 40 years of his life. So I want to talk about three things in these little verses, these first eight verses right here that talk about God's steadfast love to Abraham. He shows it to him in three ways. First, in verses 1 through 6, he shows steadfast love to Abraham by giving him a second wife after Sarah dies. He, he provides for him a wife, and that wife produces for him six more sons, seven grandsons, and three great-grandsons. And I'm sure there are daughters and granddaughters mixed in there, but because of their culture, they were left out, sadly. So there is children that are coming to Abraham through his wife and through his concubines. And according to verse 6, they all were sent out, even before Abraham died, to the east, to the east country. And I think this is partially part of the promise God made to Abraham being fulfilled in chapter 17, where God said to Abraham, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. So I think he's saying to Abraham, look, I'm going to make you the father of a multitude of nations, not just one. And this is one of the fulfillments of that as he sends these sons of his and grandsons out to the east. So God's steadfast love is being displayed by keeping his promises. Don't you agree that's a good thing? I like it that God is full of steadfast love, and because of that, he keeps his promises. I'm banking on his promises, and I'm banking on keeping them based on his steadfast love. So he does that for Abraham. The second thing he does for Abraham in his later years of his life is he gives him life up to 175 years old. Wouldn't you love to rub shoulders with him at like 150 and 160? Like, he doesn't know. He doesn't know he's going to die at 175. He's counting the days like, I don't know. Will I hit 200? Will I die tomorrow? Like, I'm sure he had to be wondering what was going to happen. So he hits 175. I love the way it says in it. You read it in verses 7 to 10 that he was a good old age Full of years. Isn't that a polite way to put it? We can say that of us gray-haired people. We're just full of years. Full of years. A good old age. Only his was 175. As I, as I read this, I thought, this is just such a reminder that life is a gift. Life is such a gift. I think, I think we need to resist the temptation to assume we will wake up tomorrow morning. We do. We just got to resist the temptation. We need to be like Ebenezer Scrooge, right? The mo Christmas morning when he wakes up and he's like, I'm as light as a feather and he's jumping on his bed. I feel like we need to wake up in the morning going, what? Look, I'm alive again. Right? I have another day. Maybe. It looks like I have another day. It, we should be overwhelmed with the gift of life instead of just assuming we have tomorrow and we have the next day and we have the next day. No, you've got today. So let's live today and let's celebrate if you wake up tomorrow morning. And let's celebrate when we wake up tomorrow morning. The very gift of life that God has given us. God tells us in Job that God has our days determined. The number of our months. He's appointed the limits of how long you will live. In other words, he knows the year, the day, the week, the very second that your heart is going to stop beating. And he's determined how it's going to happen. And so in the meantime, what do we do? Well, I think we need to believe that to live is Christ... And to die is gain. That's how we have to live. So may we live that way. May we wake up excited about the life God has given us. May we live to Christ. 
because to die is gain. May we live through Christ. May we live for Christ. May we live with Christ and may we live about Christ, believing that we are on the receiving end of God's steadfast love every morning you wake up. I feel like we should just take a deep breath. That's an expression of God's steadfast love because we don't deserve life. We've done enough to offend God to be annihilated right now. But you aren't. We aren't. And so we need to celebrate. This is a gift from God and his steadfast love. The third thing God does for Abraham here is he shows Abraham's steadfast love even at his death and right after his death. I mean, I love the details they give you. I mean, this is his funeral. I was going to start this morning the same way I started when Sarah died. Thank you for coming this morning on behalf of Abraham and his family to this memorial service and burial for Abraham. All these chapters about Abraham's life, and all we get is this tiny little window into his death. I mean, this is teeny-weeny. But he tells us some things about it, which are just fascinating. First, look, at, look who's there in verse 9. Who are two people that are there together in verse 9? And why does it surprise you? Ishmael and who? Isaac. When's the last time they were together? Do you remember? At the party. And Isaac is how old? 13, 14, 15? No, I'm sorry, he's three. He's three. Ishmael is 13, 14, 15. And what, are they, what is happening? Yeah, it's, it's bad. I mean, evidently Ishmael is treating Isaac so poorly that Sarah's like, he needs to leave. He might kill him. We, we need to get him out of here. And so where, what are they doing right now? Yeah, at least they're together, right? They come together for their father's funeral. It's almost like even after his death, God is blessing Abraham by giving his son some measure of reconciliation. Enough to at least be at the funeral. I know you guys have been to funerals where it's like, oh no, I'm going to see so-and-so. I haven't seen them in a long time. We only see them at funerals and it's been a while. I'm sure there was some of that, but there was enough harmony there to get through a funeral together. And then in verse 8, it tells us that after Abraham's death, that he was gathered up to his people. Gathered up to his people. What, what do you think that means? I'm pretty sure, and the books I've read confirm that probably it means he went up to heaven. He was gathered up to the other people that were in heaven. So I don't know whether he had saved. <laughs> this is Old Testament trying to figure out what saved meant and what it looked like prior to Abraham in faith. But did he see his mom and dad again, his grandparents? Did he get reunited with siblings, maybe? We know that he reunited with Sarah. You know they got together. Can you imagine the conversations they must have had that side of death about all that God had done in their lives for all those years, how God led them, the 25 years of waiting and how it was worth it and how God met them and finally fulfilled his promise. I, I wonder sometimes, maybe you haven't experienced this, in the circles I've run in, I've experienced this, where I think we've taken God or Jesus' words about uh, there will be no one married or given in marriage when you go to heaven. You guys know those verses. And I feel like we've taken that too far as if to say that, like, you're just going to see everybody the same. There's going to be no difference. And I'm not so sure that's true. I, I think that when Elspeth and I get to heaven, that we're going to sit down, just her and I, and it's going to be different. That we're going to recount God's faithfulness in a way that's just different than people I haven't met on earth. So I think there's going to be special moments like that. And I think Abraham and Sarah had that. I think they had a chance to sit down, recount God's blessings, uh, talk with Jesus about what he had done for them. I think it was a beautiful thing. And so for Abraham, this is it. He ascends now. He goes to be with his people. He goes to ascend to heaven to be with his God. And I love this because he really already met Jesus, remember? Right? If, if, if he was the angel of the Lord, Jesus pre-incarnate, then he's just being reintroduced to Jesus. 
And I love what it says in John 8. Jesus says this about Abraham, which is kind of a mind blower. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. So somehow God gave Abraham a little peek into Jesus' day. I guess into the gospel, into the cross, maybe into the resurrection. I don't know what he saw, but he saw enough to anticipate going to heaven. He saw enough to rejoice in it. And so I love this. This is just a reuniting of the angel of the Lord that he met at his tent front when the two angels showed up. And now he's with Jesus face to face. Not an angel anymore, but Jesus, all Jesus, full of his heavenly glory. And he was rejoicing in him. And you guys know that when we see him, we will be like him. When we behold his glory, we're transformed into his image. So that's going to be cool. Seeing him face to face and then being transformed into the person God originally wanted you to be. No sin, no more failures, no more stumbling, no more weakness, no more doubting, no more half love, no more half faithfulness. We'll be just like him, loving him, walking with him. And I, I believe that's what Abraham experienced in that day, full of joy. And so that's it. There's Abraham's last 40 years in just a few verses. Summed up right there, from age 135 to 175, probably, in those few verses where we see God's steadfast love for him before his death, those later years, at his death, even after his death. And so I want to bring an application. I want to bring two, but... One that just, I think the Spirit just brought to my mind as I was thinking about just this, this passage and what's going on there. Because usually my gut reaction is, okay, so what does that mean for me? You know, I want to know, okay, that happened to Abraham, but what about me? And I often do that for you. I think, okay, that was for Abraham, but what can I tell you about you? And I realized with this one, the question that came to my mind is, how do I do or how do I respond when I see God showing steadfast love to someone else? How do I respond? How do I respond when I see God showing steadfast love and faithfulness to someone else while I'm still in a trial? How do I do it responding, rejoicing with someone who's experiencing God's steadfast love and faithfulness while I feel like God kind of forgot about me? Do I have the ability to rejoice with others when I see them enjoying God and his faithfulness to them? Just something to consider because I think I can struggle with that. I can see other people get blessed and I can covet that a little bit. And not rejoice with them. Or, or maybe shake my fist at God a little bit and say, how come they're getting the blessing? What about, what about me? So maybe something to consider this week. How do you respond when others are rolling around in God's steadfast love and faithfulness? And the other thing, just a reminder, that I'd love for you to just put down and consider this week. And that is just the brevity of life. I've told you guys before, I feel like the role of a pastor is to prepare you to die. It's not very fun sometimes. But it's true. It's to keep you on the path, walking with Christ, loving him, so that you can get to heaven. So that you can enjoy him forever. And so some of it is, is helping us think that way, to have that mindset now. Because I want that day to inform this day. I want, I want the reality of that day that I'm going to see him face to face inform today and how I live my life. So just consider that. I think we should have a Monday morning big breakfast party. I'm alive! <laughs> I might get another day. Looks like I'm getting another day. So let's just rejoice. 
and the fact that God shows steadfast love and faithfulness just by giving us life day in and day out like he did Abraham. All right, let's move on to Ishmael. Number two, this is the next little section in your Bible. So this is going to be verses 12 to 18. It's all about Ishmael and his family. But I think God is showing steadfast love to Abraham by blessing Ishmael. And God's showing steadfast love to Ishmael by blessing Ishmael, I think. I think both of these go hand in hand. Now verse 12 starts with that little phrase. These are the generations of. Now, I don't expect anyone to remember this. But when we started the book of Genesis, we said there's ten times in the book of Genesis where we read, these are the generations of. And they're just little dividers, they're little places for us to know, okay, there's a, there's a break here, there's, there's something new that's happening. And so this happens with Ishmael. We're getting a new glimpse now into a new life. We're leaving Abraham a little bit and jumping into Ishmael. And then we're going to see it again with Isaac in verse 19, where it says it again, these are the generations of Isaac. And so this is kind of a, of a, of a new section, but it's linked because obviously Ishmael is Abraham's son. And so what do we read in verses 12 to 18? It's all of Ishmael's children, his sons. How many are there? Father Ishmael had many sons. He had 12, very much like Isaac will have, or at, uh, sorry, Jacob will have when his name is changed to Israel, right? 12. So he's having 12 tribes. Jacob, there's the 12 tribes really here of, is- of Ishmael. And if you guys remember, which I don't expect us to, in Genesis 17, God had made a promise to Abraham about Ishmael. And I think that's being fulfilled blatantly. I mean, as plain as can be here. So in Genesis 17, verse 20, it says this. This is God speaking to Abraham. And he says, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father, I guess we don't have that one on a slide, sorry. He shall father, and it says 12 princes. 12 princes. So God told Abraham, Ishmael was going to have 12 sons who would be 12 princes. And then when you look here, look down at verse 16, it says that Ishmael's sons would become 12 princes according to their tribes. So I think God is showing steadfast love to Abraham by fulfilling his promise to Abraham and to Ishmael by giving him these 12 sons, by giving them to him and then becoming great nations. Isaiah chapter 60 actually tells us that two of his sons were also gathered to God. So we know at least two of his sons somehow were gathered to God's people, were part of it. And it says here that Ishmael was too. So there's a sense in which I think we can have confidence that Abraham was reunited with Ishmael and at least two of Ishmael's sons, two of his grandsons. So God is just pouring out blessing here. Abraham and Sarah, we already know, had Isaac. There's a blessing. Abraham and Keturah had six sons, seven grandsons, three great-grandsons. And now Ishmael has 12 sons. And then we transition to the genealogy of Isaac. And we're going to see the steadfast love of Abraham to Abraham in his blessing of Isaac. That begins in verse 19 and goes all the way through chapter 35. That's the next time we see this in the generations of or the genealogy. So we've got 10 chapters where we're just going to talk about what God does for Isaac. So let's see what happens. Look at verse, well, let's leave verse 19. Because what happens here is meant to shock us. It is is meant to make you gasp. And so let's see if we can figure out why and what that is. Verse 19 says this. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. 
Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the, 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 sorry, Bethuel, the Aramean, and Padon Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, and here comes the phrase, for she was barren. That is supposed to make us stop and go, you must be joking. This must be a joke. We're to stop there and go, you're kidding, right? She's barren. Here we go again. Are we going to have six more chapters like we did of Sarah? Only now it's going to be Rebecca being barren? What is happening here? Because Rebecca can't be barren. Do you understand why Rebecca can't be barren? It's a pretty big deal. I mean, Rebecca is Isaac's wife. Isaac is the son of the promise. Through Isaac, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through Rebecca and Isaac, there are going to be more descendants than sand on the beach and stars in the sky. If there's no baby for Rebecca, there's no redemption for us. Because Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So you're still cursed if Rebecca doesn't have a baby. So they didn't know all of those details that I just quoted. But we do. So when we read she's barren, we've got to try to pretend we don't know the rest of the story and go, this is bad. I mean, how many times have you guys watched the movie and you already know the end? And when the stuff happens in the middle, you still go, oh, no. (laughs) We know the end, but this is a huge oh, no. She has to have a baby. And I think God wants us to do the big, oh no, this is bad, this is wrong, what's going to happen? By the way he places it, where he places it in the story. I mean, think about verses 1 through 6. Verses 1 through 6 are all about what? What? Yeah, babies! Babies are being born everywhere. Abraham's having babies with his wife and with his concubines. Verses 12 to 18, what's it about? Babies. Yeah, more babies. I mean, babies are popping out everywhere. And then you get to verse 21 and it says, oh, but Rebecca, she was barren. And you're supposed to go, what? Whoa, 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 whoa. What? Like, it's an interruption to the flow of baby being born, baby being born, baby being born. Everybody's having babies. And all of a sudden, it's, she can't have kids. And she's the only one that we need to have a kid. I mean, personally, I don't really care about the others. <laughs> My salvation is not linked to the others. But it's linked to her, so we need her to have a baby. We need her to have a son to keep the promise going, or I'm still under the curse of the law. And so we learn, thank goodness, in verse 26, and that's why I had Kate go to verse 26, that she does have a son. Spoiler alert. But how long did it take? Look at verse 21. How long? 20 years. 20 years. So that means that verse 21 has two sentences, and there are 20 years between the two sentences. Look at verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren 20 years, and the Lord granted his prayer. 20 years. That's 20 years of waiting. There's no gap in our Bible. There should be like, like, hit the return 80 times before you get to that next 
Oh, and the Lord answered his prayer. Because 20 years are in between those two sentences. Now, I know how you and I can feel when we go through a trial, right? It, it feels like 20 years when you're going through it, but then when it's done, it doesn't feel like 20 years anymore, right? It's like the sentences are just back to you. Yeah, I had this trial, now I'm better, right? That can feel that way. And so here we now need to, we need to kind of pull this apart and realize that, no, this is a 20-year trial, 20 years of waiting, 20 years of praying for Isaac, 20 years praying for his wife to have a child. Which makes us ask the question, why? Why? Why not get married and have a baby on the honeymoon? Why 20 years? Why are we waiting 20 years? Well, I'm going to share with you three reasons that I think are helpful. One, I think God does it this way because he wants those who are in covenant relationship with him to know that life is not all lollipops and roses. As much as I like that song, sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows, and everything that's wonderful is sure to come your way. You guys know that song? <laughs> come on, you guys. Alex, can we just sing that? Like, <laughs> at the end. And you guys know it's not. And I think he does this because he wants you to know that it's, it's not that way for his children. It'd be different if this was happening to somebody else in the story, but it's happening to his chosen son and daughter. It's happening to Isaac and Rebecca, people that are dear to his heart. And yet he puts them through 20 years of waiting and praying and praying and waiting. And I think that's one of the reasons. The other is, and we've talked about this before, I think God does what God wants to do in your life and in their lives so that you'll know God the way God wants you to know God. I think that's just it. God wants all of us to know him differently so that when we get together, we can experience what God is like through each other's lives. So the way you're experiencing God is different than how I'm experiencing God so that when we get together, we can share our stories and know more fully what God is like. It's called community. And it's important. Because I won't know God fully until I hear you tell me about what God is doing in your life. And you're not going to know God as fully unless I tell you about what God is doing in my life. And that's how we help each other grow. That's how we help each other know who God is and what he's like. Third reason I think he makes them wait 20 years, and he made Sarah wait 25 years, is this. I think God's covenant blessing is delayed this way so that we will know that it's not going to be fulfilled in natural human ways. God's promises are not based in man's works. God's redeeming plan, it's all going to be grace. It's going to happen by grace, not by human ability. And so God's like, I'm going to prove it. I'm going to make you barren for 25 years, Sarah, to show you that it's going to take a miracle for you and your husband in your old age to have a baby. Rebecca, you and Isaac, I'm going to make you wait 20 years until you're older, 20 years of barrenness to show you that when it happens, it's my hand that's fulfilling the covenant. It's my hand that's bringing about the promise. It's my hand that's going to bring salvation to the people. And how often does this happen in our Bibles, in redemptive history? Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel is going to be barren. Hannah's going to be barren. We'll see these in future years together. Samson's mom. We get to John the Baptist where Elizabeth is barren and Zachariah is really old. And then, of course, we get to Mary. Right? All of these are supernatural ways that God brings about the fulfillment of his covenant promises to show us it's all of God. It's not of man. He's not counting on anyone. 
He's going to make it happen, and he's going to make it happen all by grace and not based on man's abilities or performance. And this, my friends, is how God shows his steadfast love. Because if his redemptive plan was based on your works and abilities, there'd be no redemption. There'd be no salvation. We would be left in our sins. We would be under the wrath of God. There would be no hope. The options are God does it by grace supernaturally, or we do it by works in our own power. And the second one doesn't work. And so our hearts must be warmed and drawn to the reality that God puts this story here to grab our attention so we realize, I need God to bring about God's salvation plan. I need God to work in my life and to draw me to himself. I need God to keep me close to him. I need to back on the fact that God is the one who saves me and he's not waiting me to do something so spectacular that he just can't resist me. Because if that's the case, it'll never happen. And so this story here is just as another reminder to us that we need God's grace and we need his supernatural intervention in order for his plan of salvation to come to fulfillment in our lives. But there's something else that's interesting in this passage, and that is how God lets us participate in the process. Not earning anything, of course, but notice that Isaac is not passive in it. Isaac spends time praying, and he spends time pursuing God for what seems like 20 years. I think I read this and I go, you know, Isaac's the man when it comes to this. And it makes me ask, how do I do in praying and waiting? Waiting and praying. How do you do it, praying and waiting? And waiting and praying. I mean, I'll be transparent with you guys. I can give up quick. I'm a sprinter. I'll pray. Come on, guys, let's do it. And then off I go. Rather than being more of a marathoner where it's like, no, I need to pray and wait. And wait and pray. And persevere and pray. Not because I'm twisting God's arm, but because of the work God's going to do in me when I wait maybe 20 years to see God answer one of my prayers. So how do you do? How do you do it waiting and praying and praying and waiting? It seems like Isaac had faith like his dad and that he was faithful in his prayers. And then it says that God showed steadfast love to Isaac by answering his request. He did answer it. God answered his prayer. But then what happens next is crazy. We don't even get a chance to celebrate that Rebecca's pregnant. And in the very next verse, we find Rebecca pleading with God really for her life. Because she's pretty sure that she and the baby might not make it. That's the strength of the Hebrew text that's here. So let's read it together. Look at verse 22. And Isaac prayed, back up to 21, and the Lord for the Lord, for his wife, because she was barren. The Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if this is thus, and that's the phrase that's hard, it's, it's the, if this is how it's all going to end, it's almost like, I don't know, maybe some of you ladies while you're pregnant were like, why did I want to be pregnant? Maybe you were there like, this is hard, this is painful. Like, she is wondering, I mean, the two kids are literally at war in her womb, 
And she's wondering, are they going to kill each other and then kill me? Are we going to die? Why did I want to have babies? Like, that's what she's thinking. And so she's going now. Children are struggling within her. And she says, if this is thus, why is this happening to me? None of you have ever prayed that, have you? None of us have ever looked at God and said, why is this happening to me? Or why is this happening to me again? Why is this happening to me for so long? I mean, she is crying out to God. Why? Why? Why is this happening to me? And so it says, so she went to inquire on the internet to find out what was wrong. <laughs> Dr. MD. Her. You've got to love her faith. I know I turn to friends first, honestly, which isn't bad. But I love it that her impulse is, I'm going to God. I'm going to Lord. I don't know whether it was he got me into this in the first place after 20 years, so I'm going to him. I don't know. But she went to him. So it says she went and she inquired of the Lord. He went to the Lord. He went to him and asked for him, why, God, why, and how long, and how long, and why. And I love it that God answers her and he answers her very quickly. Which draws my attention to a side note as we've been looking at this chapter and the previous chapter. And that is how God responds to prayer. It seems like he doesn't really care about the individual as far as who they are as much as he does accomplishing his purposes. So you got Abraham's servant. He prayed last week. Do you remember how long it took for his prayer to get answered? He, 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 he didn't even finish. He's like, Lord Jesus, would you please? Oh, there it is. That's how I want my prayers answered. Before I finish the sentence, I want the results. So he does that for this servant, Abraham's servant, a, a servant, a slave, if you will. And then you have Isaac. He prays the child of the promise, and he waits 20 years. Here we have Rebecca. She prays, and she waits. Seems like it's pretty quick, the answer. There seems to be almost no delay. And so I think, I think we have these examples, and they're all this close together. I think to help us to understand that, that God is not looking at status or age or gender when it comes to the timing of his answer. He's not looking to see if you're male or female or servant or if you're one of his chosen offspring like Isaac was to make his request known to him and for him to answer in his timing. God's timing is God's timing, and it's all based in grace. And I think that's part of the point why we see such different results to different people's prayers. But I do think we need to admire Rebecca for what she did, that she went straight to the Lord, she inquired of the Lord, she didn't go to other places or people or things, she went right to the Lord, she explained her situation. And I think it's just a good lesson for us to keep in mind, and to ask ourselves, how do we do in our trial, in our decisions, do we quickly go to inquire of the Lord? Are you a quick inquirer? Do you go to the Lord in a moment of crisis, confusion, uncertainty, pain? Are you quick to go to him? I like it that Isaac doesn't give up. I like that Rebecca turns to the Lord quickly. Maybe I need to ask some of you the question, do you know how to inquire of the Lord? Do you know how to hang out with God and talk to him? Do you know how to pour out your heart to him? 
And if you do, do you have a habit of doing it? Do you love doing it? Do you think that inquiring of the Lord is the best thing I could do in this situation? You make your list of all the ways you can handle the thing you're walking through, and you know, you know what's at the top of the list? I need to inquire of the Lord. That's the best thing. That's the most important thing. He's really got all the power and the resources. Before I do all the other things, inquire of the Lord. Is that at the top of your list? And how wonderful it is that when we do that, God is not evaluating our own goodness and works and obedience before he decides whether he is going to listen. Isn't that good news? He's not looking at what you did last week or yesterday. He's not evaluating your behavior. He's not evaluating what you did wrong or right, your performance last week. I love it that we know so much more than Abraham and so much more than Rebecca that we can have full confidence that when we go to God, we come to a throne of grace. It's a throne of grace. It's a throne of grace. And that his disposition towards you is grounded in his steadfast love and faithfulness. It's grounded in Christ. We talk about this so often that when the Father looks down on you to decide if he's going to answer your prayer, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. He sees you as perfect. How do you think God answers Jesus' prayers? How much do you think God loves Jesus? How much do you think the Father loves Jesus? Well, guess what? You are clothed in his righteousness. You are his child. And so he sees you that way. And so when you cry out to him, as ugly as it might be, as angry as it might be, as confused it might be, he's not judging because you've come to a throne of grace. So I just want to close by encouraging us, encouraging you to have confidence and to prioritize inquiring of the Lord in life and in death because it's anchored, you're anchored in his steadfast love and in his faithfulness. Next week, we're going to continue the story. We're going to find out what happened with the two twins, so no reading ahead. <laughs> Let me pray for you, and then we're going to sing a song or two. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your word this morning specifically because without it, we would not know if you were a God of steadfast love or if you were a God of mediocre love or if you were a God of passive love. Without your word, we'd wonder if you were the God of loving sometimes or loving half-heartedly. And so we thank you for your word that tells us that you are the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And Lord, we, we confess to you right now that there's times where it is hard to believe in your steadfast love and faithfulness. There's times when it feels like you're very far away. It's, there are times where the burdens of this world and this life can seem so overwhelming that it's hard to think of you as our God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And so I ask, 
Holy Spirit, that you would be poured out on us, that we would have more believing now than we did when we came this morning, that we would believe just a little more in your steadfast love and faithfulness, that you would strengthen our hearts to believe and to enjoy and to find comfort in your steadfast love and in your faithfulness. I want to give everybody just two or three minutes just to sit and think, pray. There are, we have application questions and they're simple. It's just what is the Spirit telling you to do or how to respond to this? And then what, what might you do about it? So I just want to give you a minute. Take a minute and just, just pray. See, what, see if there's something from chapter 25 that the Spirit has put on your heart. And, and then I'll, I'll, I'll pray for us in just a minute. Jesus, as we, as we sing now, I pray that you would continue to pour out comfort and encouragement and believing into our hearts. Pray that we'd rejoice in you and that you would be honored and pleased as we express our love and gratefulness to you through song. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up together.